Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Inward Book Club. Mike is sat here with his new Amazon Kindle device on his phone. Very cool. (laughs) Thanks, Johnny. I don't think he had the glasses as cool, but nonetheless. Minimalist. Yes, that's me though. I'm a minimalist kind of person. You are. You're a man of of, of minimalism. Because we have this conversation about a hi-fi all the time. Uh, I'm quite happy with, with a phone and a speaker. Johnny wants all this ludicrous equipment. Oh, pricey. I know, I know you're, you're a man that's into watches. I'm into hi-fi. If you said to me now, listen, you've got loads of money and you can go out and buy something, I'd buy hi-fi over a watch. Right, fair play. So let's talk about this book then. So we're on, uh, is this uh, episode three of this book that we're discussing now? We did two episodes last time, didn't we? We were halfway we shot, yeah, through the well, book. We did, I think we did a very long one episode because okay. we there was no real cut point, was there? No, there wasn't. But we're now at part seven, which is building your one-upness. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Having had a bit of time to reflect, how do you feel about Elite Sales Strategies by Anthony Iannarino? How do I feel about it? I would say that the general message of being one up in a conversation is a good thought process to have. Good thought process to have. I think Anthony's a top guy, no doubt about it. I feel like this book doesn't necessarily stick to the core concept all the time, which is a shame because the core concept is really good. It's a bit too tangential at times for me. Would I suggest that people should read the book? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think I'm behind that. You know I like a manual, right? Are you going to leave with a manual? No, you're going to leave with some ideas of what to do. And I think a lot of it is about a mindset, isn't it? It's about a mindset of how you engage with people. I think the other part of it that's important is is about, I mean, Sandler would say, be, be treated as an equal. Yeah, you know, that's a big thing about Sandler training, isn't it? Yeah, I think it? that would that's very Sandler. And it it it's sort of got that Sandlery thing to it. And we'll get into the actual book, I guess, in a minute. Something that he's very dismissive of is selling on price. And I think a lot of companies and a lot of salespeople are very dismissive on price. I one day want to see a sales book that says, sell something that's just good enough and win on price. Because one of the richest people I know has a just good enough product. You've got a just good enough product. The guy's worth hundred million quid. Yeah. And if you speak, he's a really nice guy. If you speak to me, say, but why does it need to be any better? Well, he deliberately designed a business model that wasn't predicated. We talked about this, I think, on the last show. His whole business model isn't predicated on talent. Exactly. He finds it easy to recruit. He finds it easy yeah. to sell. This book, you've got to be a really skilled campaigner. And actually, how many people are going to get that level well, of skill? Well, I think skill? that's a fundamental issue with the sales training industry itself, though, isn't it? Which is, they're in the business of selling sales skill. Yeah, of course they are, yeah. And what they're not in the business of saying to their clients is, listen, talent's overrated. Why don't you just create a process and a system whereby you don't have to hire talented people and train them? Exactly. Yes, of course it does. Well, that's how they exist. Which is a bigger conversation about where does the sales training industry go in a world that's driven by process? Bigger conversation. So so on this one, I got to this point that's identifying implications. And he says, being one-up means guiding your clients to recognise and understand the implications of their assumptions and their decisions. Right. I think that's just spin selling in disguise. I did write that. Yeah. In my notes. No, I'm not saying he's wrong. And a lot of people won't read spin selling. 
But what's the implication if you're not doing this? It's sort of like the same thing, isn't it? it yes, it did feel a bit that way. Mm. And then I, I've got here on one of these pages, I'm on page 124 of what would have been the hardback is now the PDF. It says, the longer you work in an industry, the easier you will find the work. But first, we will need to outline several approaches with provocative names to ensure you're one up. I think that was a really interesting point. The longer you're in a game, the easier you find it to become one up. Yeah, well, you've just got the benefit of hindsight and experience. I mean, what's our strap line? Hindsight? Uh, benefit of insight, ability to deliver. Um, wh what it got me thinking about that was, I look at different candidates who have had brilliant careers, some have had bad careers, some have had good careers. And I think I was thinking about a guy I interviewed yesterday who has, he moves jobs about every two years, but each job move has no real, there's no logic to why you would go from that company to that company. Because he's changing markets all the time. Yeah. And what I did think when I was thinking about it, it just, he immediately sprung to mind was I thought, you've got no one-upness at all. Yes. He can't have any one-upness because he has so little expertise in any given subject area that he can't create one-upness. And in and of itself, that's weakening his ability to build a career. Well, interestingly, that's a segue into the next bit I've highlighted, which is you. he talks about erasing mistakes in advance. He says, your advantage is that you have witnessed different companies make different decisions, observing both their mistakes and their success. This situational knowledge is unavailable to your one-down client. So what he's saying is, I've seen it before. Yeah. We've, I've often never seen that before in recruitment. If you do that, this will happen. Here's where you're going to be in two weeks. Now, actually, clients client. that you've got a good relationship with, they go, do you reckon? Yep, 100%. Yeah. They go, right, thanks for your counsel. New prospect, they go, yeah, whatever, do one. And then two weeks later, they go, oh, Christ, you said that was going to happen two weeks ago. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Then it made me think of another candidate I'm working with at the moment who has been in a single part of the market for a very, very long time, this particular chap. 25 years in a specific technology area since its very inception. And he now works in like a consulting firm as an almost like an overlay salesperson where they provide this particular technology. And when I spoke to him, I thought, you're rubbish. Good. You're a bit average, but he sells loads. And I realised now having read the book that it must be all one-upness. Well, it's interesting. Again, that's another segue into something else. Constructing the context for decisions. The reason companies hire consulting firms is so they can gain counsel from someone with knowledge and experience they lack. You know, why do I use my financial advisor? Because he knows stuff he you don't. He just knows stuff I don't. Yeah. He's one up. But do we have to go through some big, drawn out, protracted, him selling to me thing? No. I know he's one up. That's why I phoned him. <laughs> do you know what I mean, though? That's, that's part of it, I think. But that's his lack of belief in his own salesmanship and knowledge in, his, in what he does. He goes to me, he goes, do you play golf? I went, yeah, but I don't want to play golf with you. First time I met him. Went, Why not? I said, because I don't want to play golf with you. I actually want you to sort my mortgage out. Ever since we had that conversation, it's great. We have quarter of an hour meetings now. See, my mate charges people by the hour for his financial advice. This guy don't. Right. So he's, he's immediately one up because he's billing you to be in the room. Exactly. So where to find insights. He talks about where to find insights and the insights create one-upmanship. Um, outside your four walls, I would have insisted that you read widely, pay attention to news stories that would affect your clients and develop a set of deep insights that allow you to see something that your clients don't see yet, making your one-up prospective value to them. Interesting, I'm working with a software company at the minute, and I said to this guy, who's your best guy? And he told me, and I met him. And the client is a proper live wire, you know, aggressive is what he is. And I met this, uh, this guy, and he said, what do you make of my guy? And I said, it really surprised me. 
And he said, why? And I said, well, because he's sort of a bit dull, really. And you're a bit of a live wire. And he said, tell you what, Mike, he knows more about that industry than the client, about the client's industry than they do before they walk through the door. He said, literally, he just spends hours in the office reading trade press. And I used to tear my hair out about it, but he reads the trade press, somebody announces something, he sends it through to a new prospect, and he just books appointment after appointment after appointment. Absolutely fascinating. Um, he says here, he says, I know I'm railroading this a bit, Johnny, but he says, That's fine with me. If you're not one up, you're one down. Yeah. Now, this got me thinking about price a little bit. And I was thinking, well, you know, he's, he's, he, and, and he disagrees. He says, if you're one down, that's a good place to be because you can go to one up. What he doesn't say is that you can stay in a one down position. Yeah, okay. You know, and I think, like, if we think about, um, you know, selling as a great context, I, th- I think sometimes using his own language, there's a point to staying one down. You know, if you so so we've interviewed a, a, a lady to work for us, Johnny, who sells, who books appointments with lawyers. Yeah. She's one down. No matter what you do for her, she will always be one down. She's one down to the people to whom she sells. Yeah. But does a lawyer want to deal with somebody who he feels is one up? No. I don't think so. I think their ego is going to stop it. Sorry, all loyals out there that are listening to this, but you're an absolute pain in the ass and I hate dealing with you all because you're all cleverer than everybody else. I think it's a very difficult balance being one up with a lawyer. That's a tough balance. If you're one up with a lawyer, I think you're going to lose them and not sell anything. You You are if it's overt. Probability, probability wise, there's a good chance of that. Yeah. You've got to be careful with that Mm. because actually so many of them have such big egos often because they're actually earning a third of what the salesman's earning. But you've got to be very careful not to let them feel like they're one down. Mm, yeah, com- completely. Even if you are one up. I-, I thought there was a really interesting point here on page 140 where he talks about my most respected peers in sales consulting all learn to sell by selling commodities. Jeb Blunt sold uniforms, a service with no differentiation. Uh, Mike Weinberg sold plastic fittings. I sold temporary staffing competing against companies that provided the very same service with a database that was indistinguishable from my own. And it did get me thinking that a little bit. I do think, and his point he's making is, that it's actually almost in a way, it's hardest to be one up or create one-upness if you're in a really market-leading environment. Aren't you one up by definition? You one up by definition because you work for the market leader and everybody else is bought You know, if you work for Microsoft, surely you're one up. Yes. Well, you're no, and you're known. You know, why do people try and get in the top right-hand corner of Gartner? So they get incoming. Well, it, that, that is the procurement of one-upness. Yeah, of course it is, yeah. We're a Gartner Magic Quadrant vendor. Why would you not want to talk to me? Yeah, exactly. He then talks about, and I've sort of uh, going to um, very simply summarise the story, but he says, if you've got two suppliers already been in for the work and then you're the third supplier in you're in a good position to become one-up by offering one-upmanship advice because you're seen as a bit impartial. I think that surely that's what the reseller channel does. I know they don't like to call themselves the reseller channel, but by being a VAR, you put yourself automatically in a state of being one-up because you know all the different options that the client doesn't know. Yes, you've got that holistic one-upness. But I also think that, and I think this is very challenging, in our sector, and I think we talked about this in the last show, I can only imagine it must be incredibly tough to have some one-upness. When the customers are as well-educated as they are. Not according to Anarino. He says you can still gain it. Yeah, I'm sure I do you agree can. with you. But I think there's probably diminishing marginal utility It's not to something I'd try and do if I was recruiting. You know, if a client said, right, I want to hire somebody that knows low-code and finance and has got enough credibility to be one-up, I'd say, yeah, just brief somebody else. Because, <laughs> like, you're never going to do that. 
He says, things to consider when providing advice. Obstacles. The first obstacle... Go on, let's go back to that. Why would you not let a client brief you? You know, in the old days, we used to get a lot of briefs where the client used to say, I want somebody who's, who's a challenger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like the... Well, that about, was just the Kool-Aid at that time. Yeah, there it? was about an 18-month period where the Kool-Aid was, candidate must be a challenger. You know, prior to that, candidate must be a solution seller. Prior to that, candidate just must... Just an advisor. Yeah, yeah. It's whatever Kool-Aid the sales leaders have drunk at that period of time. So let's just say they all go out and they buy Elite Sales Strategies by Anthony Annarino, right? And the clients say to you, Mike, I want a guy who can be one up in the conversation. Why do you not want that job? It's completely unscalable. I'd have that job spec. If a client said to me, paid me by the alpha or one membership, is that a good strategy? I'd say, no, it's not. A good strategy is to do what Monday.com have done, have a good product, market the living daylights out of it, and then just hire anyone you want. That's yeah. why they can scale. Yeah, that's why they're a billion dollar company. That's why they can scale. So it's the lack of scalability or is it the, uh, and it's the, la the lack of scalability and that's because actually those people are so hard to find. You just create an employment trap for yourself. Yes, it's very employment trappy, isn't it? One hundred percent, hundred percent. It's a proper employment trap because actually, what you're hiring is people who have real talent and real wherewithal. Yeah, which you and I is it may sound like we're being unfair, but there's not many that have that. Not many, very few. I've got one at the minute. You know, I'm talking about defence guy. Yeah, proper top class. He'll have serious one upness. He's the best defence guy I've met in 22 years. So I'm going to have to wait another 22 years to meet another. So could you scale? You know, a business by hiring Marcus Smith, it's not his name, by hiring Marcus Smith. No, because what you can do, hire one every 22 years. Oh, and then be beholden to him because he might resign. Why don't you just create a better business system for yourself so you can hire anyone? Yeah, better branding, better marketing. Yeah, and exactly. I'll and I'll place you an, an ordinary guy on 70K base, ordinary yeah. guy on 70K base, but I'll place an ordinary guy on 70K base who's going to come along, work hard and do a nice job with the leads that you give him and and the challenger content that, and this was my thought, well, I think we talked about this on the last show and I can't remember, but uh, I feel like a lot of the one-upness, whose responsibility is it? Is it not the responsibility of a marketing team? That's what Monday.com do. Brilliantly marketed. But obviously, somebody from Monday.com legal well, counsel is going to phone in if now. If you read but... Challenger Sale, what they say is it's marketing's job, or the Challenger customer, it's marketing's job to create one-up content. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so he talks here about giving advice, two tactics. He said, tactic number one is to ask for permission. One way you might approach offering your advice and recommendations is to ask for permission when it's not necessary, with something like, would it be okay if I shared with you what seems to be the most valuable next step and produces the best overall long-term results? No. Um, I do not like that because it's a closed question. Correct. This is like another bugbear of mine. What happened to the basics? For those listeners who don't know, if you, if you clock my LinkedIn feed, I've had a bit of an argument with Anthony today on LinkedIn about that sort of thing. Quite right. We've thrown, and you know, I say it all the time, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, open and close questions. Yeah, quite right. Quite right. Basics of questioning. Yes, no. Tie downs. How do you feel about that? It's a good idea, isn't it, Mr. Client? Completely correct. I said we've woke washed the industry to the point where people are, are no longer doing those very basic things. That's deemed pushy. That's a good idea, isn't it, Mr. Client? That's pushy now. Really? I think that's an opportunity for the client to say, well, no, I don't think it's a good idea. It's a trial close. It's a gentle push towards further enhancement of the conversation. 
Correct. He says here, he's on about, I'm on percentage 61, Johnny. He goes about increasing their investment and he goes, in the long history of our universe, there has never been an outcome that was improved by investing less time and energy. So I'm just going to repeat that. In the long history of our universe, there has never been an outcome that was improved by investing less time and energy. Other than the automation market, AI, low code, the tech industry in general? Yes. I do wonder with a lot of the authors we read who are sales trainers, I do wonder how many of them have clients in our sector. I Yeah, completely agree. You know, I think a lot of them do very well and are great sales trainers in other areas. I bet, I bet he's a brilliant salesman. And a brilliant trainer. Yes. I would imagine if you spent thousands of pounds on several days of his time to train a sales team, he'd probably do a great job. But yes. I wonder if he'd do a great job at Snowflake or at Databricks or at Tableau. Well, let's find out. Let's let's row them up. He goes, the trading value rule, 61%. Every time you give advice or recommendations, you should follow the trading value rule. Explain exactly how your client is going to benefit from taking your advice or following your recommendations, even if they never buy from you. But don't worry, they're going to buy from you. I, I sort of quite like this because there's a, there's a lot said about giving away free consultancy. Yeah, okay. I think a lot of the advice that we give clients about recruitment and stuff like that, it's free consultancy, and I think it always comes back. So I think what he's talking about here is if you're one up and you're in a position where you can offer advice that might help that client, just give it. I agree. Because in the end, it'll yeah. come back. Well, I gave a client some advice a, a while ago who was hiring. He had a hiring problem, and they're a small business, and they're just in that point where they're about to hire a first salesperson. And he was nervous about it. And he said, what am I going to do? And I said, do you know what I think you should do? I don't think you should hire anyone because your budget's only 60 to 70K. You want a lot of salesmen for your 60 to 70 grand. Mm. And he went, well, what do I do? I said, well, you're always going to think that whoever you hire is shit. You're going to fire them and I'll end up either giving my money back or worse still, you won't fire them in the first three months and I'll keep my money, which is great for me. And then you'll hate me as much as you hate the salesman. So she says, what do I do? And I said, don't hire anyone. Go out, hire two Pareto grads or Celsius grads. I'll, get, I'll put you in touch with Dave Shields. Get them on, get them to smash the phone, book some appointments, and you go and deal with the deals. And he went, okay, is that really what you think? I went, yeah, it is. Don't give me the money. I'll make money, and you'll be pissed off in the final analysis. Week later, he rings with an amazing lead. Like, a, just a killer lead. And that killer lead's going to be a placement. So that's that's what I I agree with Anthony. That's what it's about. And I agree with Anthony. Yeah, I agree with him as well. I think he's right. And I remember that particular conversation was about half an hour long, and I stood in my office on my putting mat, thinking, "You're not making any money now, dickhead." Yeah, but actually, it saved you four days' research. Just saved me time and energy, and then and then he gave me another lead. Fair play. So we're now on number nine: the one-up obligation to proactively compel change. What does that mean? So he's saying, give him some one-up as well. Here, your one-up approach must include the ability to proactively help your clients change perhaps the most difficult sales task in a complex environment. He's saying, listen, uh, he's, he's put here, change follows a subtle but consistent pattern, which I call the certainty sequence. Uncertainty goes to certainty of negative consequences, goes to uncertainty, goes to certainty of positive outcomes. Now, it sounds a little bit like spin selling, but I do quite like it. 
and he's saying your one-up personship should be able to give the prospect enough certainty that if they make change, they will avoid negative outcomes that they don't want. Right. And I think, fair enough. And then he says, okay. before creating optimistic certainty, you need to create certainty that your prospective client will suffer the negative consequences if they maintain the status quo and wait too long to address their challenges. So, you know, that's a, a little bit, I mean, if, if you were to put that into the context of the security market, yeah, you know, that's the best example of it, isn't it? So your network's all right, but if it goes down, you'll be in really deep trouble. Won't you? You're, thank you, Johnny. Yes. <laughs> you'll be in really deep trouble. Um, and then educating to that point so that they become secure so they're not in deep trouble. Whereas what Anthony's saying, if you let them wait and their network goes down, then they're in really, really, really deep trouble. And then it's so late, it's more difficult to fix. Well, the whole security business is based on FUD. Yeah, I agree, yeah. And the good security guys, they build credibility. They scare the living shit out of the clients. The clients go, really? Could that happen to me? They go, yeah. Well, they go, well, it happened to your competitor. Yeah, it happened to them down the street. Look, is it, you know, well, how often do you see it on LinkedIn of the, where the sales guys are just building one upness all the time, aren't they? Mm-hmm. But they, the moment there's a, a hack or a breach somewhere, they're sticking it on LinkedIn as a post. Why? Because they want their customers to know, listen, this could be you. Well, he says here, and he's quoted somebody, Keegan and, and Lackey, whoever they are, neither overwhelmed by the conflict nor able to escape or diffuse it. It's interesting. It's a bit it? too intellectualizy for me. I get it. And I, and I really respect. Anthony's research here. He's, he's researched his book, Keegan yeah. and Leahy, and he goes into it, actually. And he goes, Keegan and Leahy's work gets granular because they deal with individuals that participate in a team process. And he basically lists a load of stuff as to how you can take people through that process that's a bit too boring to go on. But he says, you have to recognise the forces that either compel or prevent change, and then you need to tailor your interactions to meet their needs. Fair enough, pretty obvious stuff. Do you know what my issue is here is, you know, what are we on? Page 171. My issue is this is very intellectually. It's sort of out of kilter with the rest of the book. Yeah, it's all theory, It didn't very much feel like an Anna Reno style of writing, I didn't think. It doesn't. I like Anna Reno, and he's going to hate it if he listens to this bit. But Anna Reno's stuff is really good often because it's just simple and it's easy to digest and easy to take interaction on the back of it. Yes. His other books are like... Do this. And I go, that's a really good idea. I'll do that. Whereas this is a bit more like a theorising. Yeah, it's a bit theoretical for me. Mm, mm, mm. And, you know, I'm all for theoretical. I'm all for heavyweight, intellectually stuff. You know, you should see the stuff that's on my Kindle from holiday. But, uh, no. Very interesting. He talks about, in Chapter 10, triangulation strategy. Helping clients decide while avoiding competition. Now, I think it's pretty interesting, this, because what happens, I find, sometimes with my prospects is I'm trying to get into this company at the minute and, you know, it might happen, it might not. Guy's dealing with two recruiters and what I've been doing really is talking to him, playing the other recruiters off against each other and then getting them to compare the recruiters. So now that client is using me as the sounding board for the two competing recruiters. Right. And that puts me in a position of one-upmanship. Of course it does. And I think that's a really cool thing to do, that. Yeah, and it's fun. Well, it's very sort of manipulative always, yeah. isn't it? But this chapter, I mean, I'm, you know, I've summed it up awfully, really. But, uh, you know, that, that, yeah, I mean, if you listen to this, you go, well, you sort of missed the point there, really. But um, it's what it's about. And then he goes, 
Four models of value. To explain how to execute a triangulation model, we have to start by conceptualizing several models. And he talks about commodities, scalable commodities, solutions, and strategic partners. Yeah. Uh, this bit, my mate, who's a ultra gazillionaire, he's a commodity seller. But he makes loads of money selling commodities. Loads of it. Loads of it. Absolutely loads of it. And I do think that a lot of the sales authors are too heavily telling all the sellers that they need to become strategic partners. I just, I don't buy that. No, maybe, I don't buy it too. Maybe in certain places, you know, like that's what Accenture do, isn't it? They're a strategic partner for change or whatever their strap line is. But if you work for Tableau, are you a strategic partner? No. What do you sell? Visualisation dashboards. So we're are waiting you... for the lawsuit from Tableau. No, but, no, but, but really, do you know what I mean? What do you sell? Visualisation dashboards. And what's wrong with that? They made a bucket load of cash Correct. with a good product. It's a, it's a commodity product. Everybody's got one. You're the market leader. Are you really a strategic partner? No. Correct. And I've Not got another really. example. I referenced this guy a few times, the guy that's got all the watches. I was around his house this weekend, moved to a new house, blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, come, where do you get your business from? He goes, yeah, I just replied to tenders and I just go in cheapest. That's his strategy. And he calculates, if I go in at that price, can I still make money on it? Yes, I can. Right. wins loads of business. Right, I'll go in at that price. If he got him in this room and said, are you a strategic partner? He'd laugh and go, why? No, I'd just get jobs. I'd just get jobs and do them. And this guy builds like bridges. Gets jobs, does them, and makes sure when he quotes that there's still enough bunts in it to make it worth quoting under what everyone else is quoting. Because what's interesting, I've also got another mate who's in commercial property. And... The company, I don't know how he sells, he's my mate, I go out drinking with him, but if you're selling commercial property at the minute, let's say, and you yeah. work for, I don't know, who, I don't know who sells Can commercial property. Can you imagine property. how hard that must well, be? Well, imagine how hard it is. Are you actually going to try and form a strategic partnership? Are you actually going to do that? Or are you just going to sit at the bottom of Anarino's scale and go, well, I'm just going to stay in commodities. How much is your office space? It's that much. Is it cheaper than theirs? Yeah, right. Do you want to buy it? How do you be strategic if you're selling office space? Yeah, look, we're sat in Leeds right now. And if Alex does a quick pan around, it's just full of cranes. It's full of cranes building office spaces that no one's going to use. Exactly. What kind of sale is that? That is full-on commodity. Yeah. He goes here, he says, no matter what the delivery model, there is always a way to position your competitor to the left has been inadequate due to the concessions it demands. Now, I think it's interesting this, because we, we often get involved... Uh, with new clients and they, they want us to make loads of concessions on T's and C's all the time. And uh, the conversation I always have is, I say there comes a point where if another company is willing to make those concessions, you have to worry and wonder about which bit of the service they're not going to do. Yeah, which bit they're removing. How good the quality of their staff are. How good the quality of their marketing. How good the quality of their brand. But that's insight, Mike. Yeah. And in fairness, I'm with Anarino at this. This is what he says. Right. He's bang right about What this. does he say? What's his quote? He says, no matter the delivery model, there is always a way to position your competitor to the left as being inadequate due to the concessions. Yeah, bang on. Und absolutely, you're right. And if you're in a sale and one of your competitors is making stupid concessions, you need to ask your prospect why they're doing it. And he goes, your clients are always forced to choose between higher prices and lower value. Depends on what you define as value, obviously, but I think that's right, isn't it? The clients have to choose between higher price and lower value. We're an expensive provider of what we do. Yep. We're expensive. We're, we're, I think we're fairly priced, actually. No, I think we're expensive because we get it right. Yep. You can go and use a cheap recruiter. Yep. Feel free. We're not expensive, but we're not cheap either. We represent good value, is my point. Yes. 
because the value is there. And that's what he's saying here. And I agree with him. Your prospect has that choice to make. Now, actually, your prospect might go for a cheap supplier. You know, talking about the gazillionaire that builds stuff, they go, well, it's good enough. You know, it's monitored by all kinds of different building regs and stuff. It'd be fine. You know, whatever. Yeah. Fine. He'll have certain accreditations. Yeah, certain accreditations. Oh, he knows what they are. And certain levels of safety and all that stuff below which he can't get the job anyway. So as long as he maintains those safety accreditations, ISO accreditations, all that, he's good to go on the job, isn't he? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Completely, yeah, completely. I'm flicking through the book a bit now because I've not... um, Read it? Well, I've read it, but I've not uh, underlined much stuff. The tail end of the book loses me a little bit. It's very thick and very rich in information, isn't it? He says something very interesting, actually, I thought, on chapter 11. He's talking about... Being one up helps your clients change body bar. And he talks about going into this, uh, being asked to fly out to see a client. And then this client, um, he put, I watched him pretend not to see me into the room, a move designed to create a power dynamic in his favour. I would have to wait for him despite flying to the meeting at his request. I thought that was a very interesting reference that book read on power frames. Yes. Whatever that was called. I've moved up a little bit here. And I'm really pleased later on in the book, Anthony's come up with something here. I mean, I'm on 222, 258 pages in the PDF. The subtitle is The One-Up Mindset. And the first bit is he says, you are responsible for your own development. One-down salespeople often avoid taking responsibility. The subject of the first two components of the one-up mindset. The first area where you need to take full and complete control over your burgeoning capacity to be one-up is your personal and professional development. You're the greatest asset you will ever have. And I think he's bang on. We've said this a lot. Yeah. And he's, he's absolutely right. Of course he's right. But people don't. No, they don't. I just don't get There's it. There's a great post. I follow this. some of these sort of trendy golf Insta pages. And... Uh, there was a post this morning about you're not playing well. It's the middle of the golf season. Da, 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 da. It's everybody's fault but yours. Try practicing. And it's so true, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. People walk off the golf course. Oh, I can't believe that. I've had a terrible day today. Oh, oh, bloody hell. It was too windy. The greens were too quick. Have you been practicing much this week? Oh, no, I haven't got time to practice. Yeah, I completely agree. Here's interesting. So the final chapter is labelled as top secret. Right. And this is really secret stuff. He says, the best way to expose a client's lack of knowledge and experience is by asking questions you are certain they cannot answer. An absolute favourite of mine is what's target? Million quid. What's the order value? About 100 grand. Right. So it's 10 sales. Brilliant. What's your close rate from initial lead to uh, sale? They never know. (laughs) One of my favourites is what's your percentage success ratio on your sales hiring? Oh, it's a beauty. I've not asked that. That's oh, a beauty. Literally, they never have an... Un- what do you mean? My percentage success ratio on my sales? Well, how many salespeople do you hire? And then what's the percentage success rate of hires that you make where you deem a hire successful? Uh, and what would you use and what criteria and metrics do you use to deem a sales hire successful? But it can be too much because sometimes it's that big a kick in the nuts than point at which they realise how shoddy their hiring process is. Do you know what's interesting is, recently, there's a company I wanted to get into. They hired a guy, and respectfully, that guy is garbage. And I know he's garbage because he's just, just too many jobs. And then he put, he'd been there like seven months, and he put on LinkedIn, I'm really sorry to say I'm leaving such and such. Blah, blah, blah. I got his post on LinkedIn. Yeah. Sent it to the VP. Right. And said, right, he's left after seven months. I know you use a recruiter. I reckon he's on about that. I think you've paid about that. Point one. Point two is, how many people did you interview to find that person? How much time did it take? Point three is, 
When you used the recruiter, what feedback did they give you on the candidate cohort size that they'd reached out to in the feedback? What percentage of the candidates had replied? All they replied with was a smiley face. And you know, I said uh, earlier when we were, because we were in the office, I said, I'm about to get a spec out such and such. And they'd had seven one million pound earners. Fair play. I mean, I can see that going wrong and him just like not replying at all. Oh yeah, because you can easily be too clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he doesn't talk about that. There's nowhere in the book where he says, you can be too bloody clever here. Yes, he doesn't talk enough, I don't think, about the dynamic of being the smart ass in the room. Because I think it would be very easy, you know, I've just given that lead to Dave of the young graduate that used to go out with my daughter, whose father we know, who's left university in his room and said, I want to start my sales career. You could put this in his hands and he could very easily go one-up mental. Yeah, just just annoy everybody. Yeah. You could be really, really, really annoying trying to be one-up, couldn't you? Yeah. I do it plenty where I think, just losing this one now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Completely agree. I'm losing him. I'm losing him. Well, best, it, I, best I start I, acting a bit more, I tell you what's dare very I say it, humble. So what's very interesting is, so uh, I do a lot of work with one company. That one company had a guy leave and join another company. The one company said to me, said, listen, you need to get into this other company. That guy's a nightmare to work for. I said, right, no probs. The other company's got seven salespeople. I spoke to all seven. I've got four of them in front of my client. Every time I speak to candidates, I think, don't tell them everything you know, Mike. Because if you tell them everything you know, you will freak them out. And you yeah. sometimes can freak people out. Yeah, 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 of course you can. That's and, what. And like we're saying, it doesn't cover that dynamic. Well, you can it. either freak them out that they don't know stuff and they can end up not making a decision. You know, you can be that one up that they're sat there going, Jesus Christ, we're miles off here. What are we doing? Yeah, but getting back to the point is what he should cover is just managing the dynamic of not being a smart ass. Yeah, that would be useful. So what do you make of this one then? We've done it. We've whisked through the second half a bit, haven't we? Is it a good book? Yeah. Would I read it? Yeah. Yeah, I would. Is it Anarino's best ever book? No. Do I think Anarino's a top guy? Yeah. What would I give it out of 10? Six and a half. If there was more about a model of properly... Like, I feel like he could do with a better model, a chapter and model of creating a one-upmanship and then using the one-upmanship. Like a summary. It needs a flow of, this is a case study of one-upness. Yeah, if they've been, yeah, that's a good idea, yeah. But, you know, is it a good book? I, I think it is. Almost a work-through of a case study, of several case studies of creating one-upness. You know, like the Jim McMahon book was very allegorical, wasn't it? Yes, that was exactly the word I was going to use. It wasn't. That's no, no, you... no, no, because I didn't know the word, but yeah, I know what you mean, you're it, right. It, so the, the Jim McMahon book was full of allegory, and he gave you stories of how people had done X. Actually, what would have been great here would have been several stories of Dave walks into the room, da 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 da, da and this is what he does. He's read this, just more real, it dives into the theory of it all. Mm. I think if I gave that to young Ben, who called me yesterday, I think he would misinterpret that book. I think he'd go, be a clever TWAT and no more than them. And I think he'd end up getting turfed out of a lot of meeting rooms. Yes. Whereas actually the first book he should read is something very basic about open and close questions. Yeah. So I wouldn't give it to a, a fresh grad. 
if somebody rang me, you know, it's holiday season. It's not uncommon because we do this show. People do ring and say, well, I'm going on holiday. Got any book recommendations? Get that all the time on LinkedIn. And I usually tell people to read novels because I think we learn more from novels than we do from nonfiction. That's a whole other conversation. But would I recommend it? I don't think I would because I think it's quite dense. I'd recommend it to, you know, some guy from Avenard phoned me up. Yeah. 100% read it. Yeah, I'd recommend it to people who I know are a student of the craft. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But I think it suits consulting sellers. Yeah, it will get you thinking about it. But I think a lot of those guys that are involved in digital transformation, big transformational sales, I think a lot of them would go, Johnny, I was doing this with Challenger a long time ago. I think a lot of them would do it without knowing they're doing it. Correct. A lot of them know that they have to be that credible that they're delivering something. Can you learn it? Yeah. Difficult. I would say. So I've given it six and a half. Johnny, what are you giving it? Six for me. It's not our best. It's not our worst. It's okay. Maybe 6.5. Maybe I'm being unfair because actually the the concepts are good. And what we're doing next? One Minute Manager. The One Minute Manager. Should be a short show, that. (laughs) Do you know, that's me in a nutshell as a manager. Have you got the copy of it yet? Yeah. It's like 40 pages. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. Well, it will make one short single show. We've what got we, a guest on it, haven't we? We have. Rob Barrowcliffe's coming from Roastmaster. Good. So, yeah, it'd be an interesting one. It might be that it's that short. We might have to read one of the other Ken Blanchard books. No, I think a 20-minute show won't hurt us. Won't hurt our audience. I think it's good. I think we've got to have a variance. You know, we get very caught up in some of these really high-ranging sort of... Highfaluting. Yeah. What's wrong with Price, this? I'll tell you, many, many years ago... Chris Spencer got me to read The One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. There you go, and you had all these monkeys on your back, and then you didn't a week later. Well, you learn, don't you? Whose monkey is it? Yeah, exactly. So actually, I'm quite excited about it. It's probably going to be a good segue into me rereading The One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. Because actually, you and I have had a few monkeys cross our backs, now that I think about it. But that's a conversation for another day when we do another show. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.